0: Welcome to a Voices of Esalen archive edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I'm pleased to bring you an interview with the godfather of psychedelic psychotherapy, Stan Groff. This interview was conducted at the Esalen Institute on August 5th, 1985 by a young Perry Holloman. Perry, of course, is a well-known figure at Esalen himself, having become over the course of his career an accomplished body worker and a beloved Gestalt therapist. Perry has his own episode on this podcast, which I'd encourage you to check out. During this recording, he and Stan investigate the emergent tendencies of transpersonal psychology, touching upon the non-ordinary states of consciousness which Groff is well known for, as well as Jungian archetypes and the concept of synchronicity. They also go into the deep connection between Freudianism and Newtonian thinking and discuss how new discoveries in quantum physics have affected other scientific disciplines, including psychology. It's a superb discussion conducted by two very smart people, and by its end, you too will have an enhanced understanding of why transpersonal psychology became an appropriate container for psychedelic psychotherapy, and indeed any therapy, that seeks to go beyond personal biography and delve into the realm of the spiritual and the mystic.
1: By way of introduction, my name is Perry Holloman, Today I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Stan Graf on the uh, issue of transpersonal psychology. Stan has been a scholar in residence at the Eslin Institute for the last 10 years. And uh, in addition to having been the chief of psychiatric research at the Maryland Institute of Psychology, he has been involved since his medical training in Czechoslovakia Uh, in researching the relationship between hallucinogenic substances and their effect upon the psyche. Stan, sort of by way of beginnings for setting a framework for what we'll be talking about today, I'd like to uh, begin by posing two questions and letting you sort of organize them in the the way you, you see fit. First, I would like to sort of establish an historical perspective through which the evolution of transpersonal psychology can be seen, beginning in terms of Freudian psychoanalysis, moving on to the the expansions upon that system created by Carl Jung, uh, as well as focusing on some of the major developments within uh, psychology in this country, behaviorism, onto the gestalt paradigm, then taking a look at modern cognitive approaches and how they all fit in to an understanding of the beginnings of the transpersonal paradigm. Uh, So that's one question. The second question is, is it possible to delineate an actual structure for consciousness within the transpersonal paradigm? In other words, Freud talked about the unconscious, the pre-conscious, and the conscious mind and subdivisions within within those, those categories. Carl Jung talked about the persona and the ego the shadow, the anima, the animus, and the self. Uh, so is there anything like that within the transpersonal paradigm? Okay, well I think I'll start with the history. Okay.
2: And the best way to do it is to go back and describe somewhat the context out of which humanistic and then later transpersonal psychology emerged. And this takes you to about the middle of this century where the academic psychiatry was pretty much dominated by two major forces or movements, and that was behaviorism and Freudian psychoanalysis. But there was also a kind of increasing dissatisfaction in a subgroup of uh, professionals uh, with what behaviorism and psychoanalysis had to offer. Not necessarily in terms of uh, um, practical application but in terms of the claims of these two uh, systems to be kind of all-encompassing or exhaustive descriptions of, of the human being, the human psyche. It was Abraham Maslow uh, who became a kind of prominent uh, critic and spokesman of this, of this movement. Uh, he offered a very kind of incisive uh, critique of behaviorism, particularly the fact that um, behaviorism somehow derived all its, uh, or most of its information from experiments in animals, such as rats and pigeons, and tried to extrapolate into areas which it really did not directly explore in, in any way. And it focused on aspects which we somehow share with animals, but it did never really address or study directly some of the aspects of human beings, which are specifically human. And he also offered a critique of uh, psychoanalysis, uh, particularly the fact that uh, psychoanalysis was somehow reducing again the the, the psyche to base instincts. Um, That also that it uh, focused on uh, the pathological populations. It derived all its information from uh, neurotic or, or psychotic patients and was totally neglecting what uh, Maslow called the growing tip of the population.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you be more specific about what he meant by that, the growing tip of the population? The
2: people who were functioning well or who are what he called self-actualizing, self-realizing beings, creative people and so on. You see that it was selectively drawing on the information from uh, the study of psychopathology and Ah. and sort of therapeutic work with people who have Mm -hmm. a lot of problems. So uh, Maslow came very close with uh, Anthony Sutich and the two of them somehow launched the group of others who were not as central to this this effort. They launched a new movement in psychology which they called humanistic uh, psychology. And they also created a journal, a Journal of Humanistic Psychology. And the basic uh, objective here uh, was to, to humanize psychology, as, as the name suggests, mm-hmm. bringing back somehow the, the interest in uh, introspection, introspective data, which behaviorism has, has totally neglected some of its extreme forms. Behaviorism would like to do psychology without referring to consciousness, mm-hmm. just from the study and sort of analysis of of uh, behavior.
1: Didn't uh, behaviorism actually deny, uh, implicitly deny, the existence of consciousness within its narrow constructs and that it saw the psyche as a clean slate uh, upon the birth of every individual and that? Uh, that the psyche was simply constructed out of stimulus-response associations. That's right. uh, Just sort of uh, reflex neurological activity. And they
2: didn't see any really qualitative difference between animals and humans. It was just a question of complexity of these uh, interacting reflexes. Mm -hmm. But there was no fundamental difference. It's difficult to deny the fact of consciousness, but they didn't think that the, the data coming from introspection from consciousness would be of any relevance. They also um, emphasized uh, that you should study organisms in order to be able to control them. In other words, the emphasis in behaviorism is to control the behavior of others. Mm -hmm. The extreme of it would be, of course, uh, Skinner. Whereas what humanistic psychology emphasized was the, the introspective data, human objectives, uh, but also sort of taking charge of your own inner process, mm-hmm. actually using the psychological information to be able to control your own behavior or sort of in terms of your own psychological processes.
1: How did uh, the Gestaltists' emphasis upon perceptual mechanisms within the psyche affect both, uh, sort of, or create the, if you will, the downfall of behaviorism and add to the formulation of, of more humanistic goals within the field of psychology. I think Gestalt therapy is a very very
2: important uh, development within humanistic psychology. You know, it's one of the many different approaches uh, for which uh, humanistic psychology kind of uh, provided a very broad broad umbrella. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, Abe Maslow and and Tony Sutich, <coughs> they uh, formulated somehow the principles of humanistic psychology pretty much independently. Mm -hmm. Fritz Perls came somehow much later, Mm -hmm. when the the general framework for humanistic psychology was already uh, established. So in any case, (coughs) this was the the basic principle, the, the basic innovation of humanistic psychology was the focus on the importance of introspective data, pursuit of human objectives, and also uh, somehow um, emphasizing the purpose of, of psychological research, that it somehow should improve the, the human condition. So the, mm-hmm. the concerns, societal concerns, were very important for, for humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology became very, very popular. You know, started gaining more and more uh, momentum and became a real force in psychology. um, Abe Maslow actually called it a third force following uh, behaviorism and psychoanalysis as the first and the second force. But it didn't last uh, more than maybe a decade at the most, uh, when there was again increasing dissatisfaction within humanistic psychology, that even the kind of definition of, of psychology that was provided by humanistic psychologists did not really uh, completely cover the the totality of the human psyche. That there were still significant areas which were somehow left out
0: mm-hmm.
2: within humanistic psychology, that was emphasizing sort of growth, uh, human potential, self actualization, self realization, and so on. And uh, this would be particularly. Um, in the broadest sense, the spiritual dimension which was uh, left out in humanistic Mm -hmm. psychology. So suddenly there was increasing interest in uh, the Eastern spiritual disciplines in in, uh, different systems of yoga, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, uh, or systems uh, such as uh, Kabbalah, for example. The professional interest was somehow directed towards these areas. And there was suddenly an awareness that, that uh, there's a tremendous gap between uh, the kind of treasures of knowledge that these ancient systems have to offer in terms of understanding of, of the human psyche, uh, consciousness, human personality, and so on. That uh, Western psychology, whether behaviorism, psychoanalysis, or humanistic psycho- psychology, have never even remotely addressed themselves to very fundamental issues, which have been explored by these ancient or, or, or Oriental uh, psychological systems.
1: It seems, uh, <coughs> although that that Carl Jung himself was interested in such issues at the time of his uh, his break, if you will, from uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, and uh, that he actually talked uh, about. Eastern mysticism and the importance of of archetype and their symbolic okay. representations within the psyche, as well as the concept of uh, an inherited psychic uh, tradition that one is born into in the world. It's very much so, but I would like to leave Jung for a little
2: later because okay. you see, at the time when we're talking about Jungian uh, analysis, uh, was not really and still is not at present part of the sort of mainstream uh-huh. academic psychiatry. And in a way, as, as we will see later, Jung has skipped somehow the, the phase of humanistic psychology. He jumped, you know, right into what we can call transpersonal psychology. He was certainly the first transpersonal therapist. Together with Roberto Assagioli, psychosynthesis. But at this time, you know, psychosynthesis and, and Jungian analysis still were pretty pretty separated from From the the mainstream mainstream. Uh development. So um, there was this increasing awareness that somehow for psychology to become really comprehensive and cover the the totality of psyche, it has to include this emphasis on uh, spirituality and different states of consciousness, consciousness uh, evolution, and study things uh, such as um, creativity, being, uh, love that has never been really adequately adequately explored and so on. And it was again Abraham Maslow and Tony Sutage who launched before humanistic psychology, who became really somehow the, the focus or the fulcrum of this new movement. And there was another de- uh, development which was quite independent, and that was the development of uh, psychedelic therapy, which w- I was very much part of where it became very, very quickly obvious that the spiritual, transpersonal dimension is extremely important. Or without any programming, people in psychedelic sessions would be entering uh, the realms of death-rebirth experiences, of past life experiences, of uh, mythological uh, experiences, archetypal experiences, and so on, mm-hmm. mystical, transcendental states. It was simply one person after another when we were doing clinical work with um, with LSD, working on specific um, problems, psychopathological symptoms that people brought into therapy, uh, we were using LSD as a kind of catalyst for psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And as we were working on these issues, very, very soon most people would transcend the realm of biography that you would uh, expect to be all there is in the psyche Mm -hmm. if you take psychoanalysis seriously. Mm -hmm. Somehow the whole story underlying the various forms of psychopathology was supposed to be in childhood and certainly in postnatal history, whereas literally one patient after another would very quickly move beyond this sort of realm of childhood, would confront uh, death, relief, birth, and then connecting to the kinds of realms that have been described either in Jungian psychology or in these great uh, spiritual philosophies, so what 's called perennial uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. so it simply became obvious that you know, these are very, very significant dimensions of the psyche. to a little more personal note. Um, when I came to the United States in 1967, I was already familiar with Esalen from a previous mm-hmm. visit. I had been here in 1965 for a brief visit with uh, Virginia Satir and mm-hmm. met uh, Fritz Perls, Dick Price, Mike Murphy and other people. And so when I came to the United States, um, I made contact with Esalen. And while still working in the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, I was coming to do seminars, usually weekend seminars or five-day seminars at Esalen. And I presented the material from the LSD uh, work. And it was actually Paul Herbert, who was running the media center at Esalen, Mm -hmm. who told me, you know, although you're working with drugs, you you sound just like Abraham Maslow. Uh, Abe Maslow um, had done his work uh, on the so-called peak experiences, as he called it, people who have spontaneous mystical states, and he described in detail the impact that these experiences had on their personality, on their value system, and he actually developed a whole new psychology based on the observations from these mystical states. Mm -hmm. And I was not familiar with Maslow. You see, I came from Eastern Europe where access to literature was extremely uh, difficult. It was not like here where everything was available. So I've never heard of Maslow. But it was at the instigation of Paul Herbert that I sent uh, to Abraham Maslow a large manuscript which I was just completing, summarizing the LSD work. Was that Realms of the Human Unconscious? No, this was this was like a pool of information, out of which about three of the books, later books, this, this um, has never been published. Uh-huh. I decided to split it because it was just too voluminous, you know. So I sent it to him and I got a very um, enthusiastic response from him and I was, he asked me to visit him in, in Boston and so I came to visit him and he was after a heart attack. And I met in the door his wife, Bertha who uh, told me as I was going to, to his room that he was so excited by the data coming from psychedelic work that she had to give, him, give it to him only for a limited uh, amount of time because she was afraid that he could have another uh, <laughs> heart attack. The parallels between his material, spontaneous mystical experiences and the, the psychedelic work. So we became very close. And then very shortly afterwards he got this uh, very special fellowship uh, and he moved from the East Coast to, to California and I made several visits and met with this small group of people who were formulating the, the, the basis of transpersonal psychology. This was Tony Sutich, um, Abe Maslow, Jim Fettiman was part of that group, mm-hmm. uh, Sonia and Gabby Margulis, and a few other people, Viktor Frankl. Visited once, we all agreed that somehow uh, it was time to launch a new movement in uh, in psychology. And Abe, Abe, and uh, Tony had the name for it. They wanted to call it transhumanistic psychology. But then um, Tony heard uh, my talk about the about uh, the psychedelic work where I referred to these experiences that come beyond biography and beyond the death-rebirth process uh, as transpersonal. And both Tony and uh, Abe liked that term very much, so that finally that became the name of the of the new movement. It's really not a new word. It was used uh, many years ago by Jung and then by Eric
1: Neumann, but it just seemed to be the right name for this, for this new psychology. Mm-hmm. Maybe at this point, then, it would be appropriate to talk a little bit about Carl Jung, who, who was, in many respects, maybe the first of the transpersonal psychologists, because uh, many of his concepts did directly involve the transcendence of personal biography in terms of the actual structure of the psyche, and also his, uh, his emphasis upon the importance of archetypal forms and their symbolic representations within the psyche and within one's conscious manifestations of life. Mm -hmm. Well, I have have
2: tremendous uh, respect for what Jung established. I believe personally that what he contributed was as far beyond Freud as Freud was beyond um, psychiatry of his his time, that it was really quantum jump, and it took really decades to fully appreciate what what Jung has contributed. Mm -hmm. I think the basic reason why it was so difficult was that what Freud contributed was extremely new was in psychology, but he was very much uh, really under the spell of uh, Cartesian-Newtonian
1: thinking, the Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm, as it is called. As well as sort of the traditional medical model itself. That's right. He, he emphasized a lot, sort of almost the, uh, the physiological, uh, biochemical yeah. aspects of, of psychiatry. You see, I, I worked
2: with Fritjof Capra uh, when he was writing um, The Turning Point. He had a number of consultants on this, and I, you know, I was his consultant for psychology and psychotherapy. And one of my tasks was to. Um, go through Freudian psychoanalysis and study somehow the relationship between Newton and, um, and Freud. And I found out that his major teacher, uh, Ernst Brücke, was uh, actually the founder of the so called Helmholtz Society in Germany, which had a very explicit program to introduce the principles, the scientific principles of Newtonian mechanics, into all the other uh, disciplines, scientific disciplines. So that when um, Freud was writing his uh, works, he was quite specifically, quite consciously, explicitly emulating Newton's thinking. So he's really very much ingrained somehow in the the whole network of Newtonian thinking. And I think what was so um, significant for Jung was that he very, very painfully freed himself from that from that paradigm, he became aware of the fact that he, if he really uh, considers seriously his own findings, that they are simply incompatible with the entire philosophy of Western science, and he connected with the group of people who were developing uh, quantum physics, particularly Wolfgang Pauli, and uh, he was interested in this sort of new scientific worldview that was emerging from from physics because he was aware of the fact that, that his findings simply don't make sense in, mm-hmm. the, in the old framework. Mm-hmm. He also developed the very important uh, concept of, of synchronicity. And it was actually in, uh, during a meal with Albert Einstein when he got tremendous encouragement that he was on the right track and that sh- he should pursue this kind of thinking because it, it was exactly paralleling the thinking of modern.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that concept of synchronicity?
2: Well, what he found out in general is that in our life, you see, sometimes very, very extraordinary events happen that seem to be meaningfully related, and that uh, the accumulation of those events really is beyond any reasonable probabilities. He gave this very interesting uh, example of uh, a man who got for his birthday a very rare kind of plum pudding and he liked it very much uh, and then for many years you know that plum pudding was not part of his life until he came to uh, Paris to a restaurant and suddenly he saw that on the menu there was the same very rare plum pudding so he ordered the pudding. And the waiter came back with an apology and said, I'm sorry, we just gave the last one to the gentleman over there. And he turned, and there was the man who gave him the pudding in the first place. And then again for many years, you know, no pudding of that kind appeared in his life until he came to a party and they were serving the pudding. So he was eating the pudding. It says, all that is missing is the man who gave me the pudding in the first place and who then was in the French restaurant the second time when when I came across this pudding. Suddenly there was a knocking on the door and this man came, he was totally confused. He was not even invited to this party. He was looking for something else, but he got, got the wrong number. Okay, so this this would be uh, Freud, I mean Jung's example of synchronicity as such. Just very peculiar kind of accumulations of events
1: where we cannot somehow really understand, you know, how how something like that could happen.
2: Yeah, apparently
1: he was, there's a thread which is is tying these semi- seemingly yeah, unrelated sort of events obviously together. Obviously missing, we're obviously missing some significant clues mm-hmm. to
2: understand those events. But what he was particularly interested in and what he became known for was a special example of synchronicity, where it's not just synchronistic accumulation of some external events, but when such synchronicity occurs between the inner psychological process and external events. Well, let's say there would be a synchronicity between something that happens in your dream and what happens next day in your life. Mm
1: Do you feel that implicit uh, within uh, that theory or hypothesis of synchronicity, whatever you would call it, uh, there is the implication of, uh, of an intelligent force within the universe which is binding together seemingly unrelated events uh, on the conscious level? I think that's a, you know, that's a very plausible um,
2: explanation. I don't know if it's the only one. But it certainly is a very, very plausible one, one that sort of uh, certainly suggests itself. But I think what it indicates in any way is that, that um, events are influenced from some levels that are not available to our, you know, the ordinary, uh, sort of conventional scientific scrutiny. That we're some, simply missing some very significant variables mm-hmm. in our understanding of the world. That there are things that are coming from some kind of hidden. Dimensions from fields
1: that that uh, have not been described by mechanistic science. Fields uh, it seem. It almost seems like a good word in which to move on to the the, the subject of quantum physics and how it uh, sort of enhanced an understanding of of this uh, transcendence of biography within the field of psychology. <clears throat> it seems that that Albert Einstein was always. Um, Focusing upon attempting to find the basic building block within nature, which seems like a very Newtonian concept, and it seems that what quantum physics has suggested, anyway, is that there is no basic building block, or if there is a basic building block, it is uh, something that exists almost on an etheric, in an etheric realm, in which uh, the basic particles within the atom seem to shift between being material, actual solid material particles, to just fields, magnetic fields, in which, uh, in which those particles cannot be be seen. They seem to appear and disappear. How has that added to, to the transpersonal paradigm, in your view? And is that an mm-hmm. accurate interpretation, mm-hmm. first of all, of uh, some of what oh. quantum physics has mm-hmm. brought in? Let me, I
2: think it would be easier if I don't answer it directly, but I sort of go back a little to fill in a little bit of history uh, um, so that we get a continuity in the transpersonal movement. We, we ended really by the launching of, of uh, transpersonal psychology when uh, also the, the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology was established, the California Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, and so on. But at that time, when uh, suddenly, transpersonal psychology became a discipline, it was still quite separate from the rest of science. It was sort of cohesive within itself, but it was very vulnerable to being called unscientific, irrational, mm-hmm. because it did not connect with the Newtonian type of thinking. But then um, development started coming in, in from other disciplines, uh, particularly uh, the philosophical implications of quantum relativistic physics, things that were coming from uh, systems and information theory, cybernetics, the work of uh, Gregory Bateson, uh, for example. Later, the developments in um, biology that culminated in uh, Rupert Sheldrake's book, A New Science of, of Life, really sort of revolutionizing thinking in, in biology. Uh, the work of Arthur Young, mm-hmm. his, his process uh, theory that really synthesizes the findings in many different, in many different disciplines. More recently, Prigogine's work, really powerful critique of the, of the mechanistic thinking. See, so suddenly, transpersonal type of thinking, or at least <laughs> developments that seem to be congruent or convergent with, with transpersonal psychology, started emerging in other disciplines. Mm-hmm. So the transpersonal psychology was incompatible. Was the old Newtonian science, mm-hmm. but it suddenly seemed to be perfectly compatible with all these, all these new developments. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened that, that books started appearing, uh, focusing on the fact that uh, quantum physics, if taken seriously, points really to an entirely different worldview. That you cannot do what many physicists would like to do and uh, simply focus on the, on the mathematical formalism, as it is mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. And say we don 't worry about the philosophical implications as long as we have, a, we have an instrument that can predict the results of experiments. There are suddenly more and more people who are saying, "Wait a minute, I mean you can 't use this type of thinking and which which is um, you know entirely different, fundamentally different from the Newtonian thinking using, uses some completely different principles and believe that this does not have any serious. Philosophical implications, or that this does not have any implications for the for the worldview, uh, scientific worldview. So those were the, the early books were books like um, Larry Leshan, the medium, the mystic, and the physicist who was showing the the parallels between the uh, the mystical worldview and the and this new quantum relativistic uh, worldview. He actually has one part when he juxtaposes. Um, Passages from the texts of mystics and of uh, modern physicists, and lets you guess which is which, and it's frequently very, very difficult because of the of the parallels. There was another book uh, called Space, Time, and Beyond, which was Bob Tobin's book, based on discussions with Fred Wolf and Jack Sarfati, and then particularly uh, Fritjof's book, uh, The Tao of Physics. I mm-hmm. think you know that became a bestseller, really. Brought attention to this to this convergence between physics and um, and mysticism.
1: Do you do you feel that within uh, certain traditions of Eastern mysticism, there are that they are actually uh, methodologies for the application of transpersonal principles? What I mean by that is is Through the emphasis upon selflessness and losing the self within the disciplines of of yoga and meditation, for instance, do you feel that that is an acknowledgement of the principles of transpersonal psychology and an actual methodology through which the individual can transcend his own biography and enter into a new type of worldview, a new relationship with the world around him or her?
2: Well, I think what is significant is that, you see, transpersonal psychology is somehow inconceivable uh, without the recognition of, of uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that, that, in addition to the theory uh, of transpersonal psychology, you now also have to have technology that somehow makes it possible to open up the 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 world of observations mm-hmm. you see that that the conceptual framework of transpersonal psychology discusses right, right. otherwise you would have uh, everyday type of experience and transpersonal theory that is totally right so you have to you have to go into meditation or you have to use transfer, uh, experiential type of uh, psychotherapies or you have to do trans dancing or or use uh, psychedelic plans in order to access those kinds of realities, those kinds of experiences, or those kinds of observations that are somehow the the subject of transpersonal psychology. So in all these uh, these ancient spiritual, oriental spiritual disciplines, you always have a technology, and then you have the theory. And, and those systems that are really good would tell you, you know, don't believe the theory unless and until it's confirmed by your experience. Mm-hmm. So that it, in the first place it offers you the technique, go and do these things and then you will have experiences that will make you understand what the theory is talking about. Mm-hmm. I would like to address more specifically the question of the relationship between quantum physics and, and psychology. Because if you, if you look at it uh, historically, you'll find out that uh, the traditional psychology was really directly derived from the Newtonian type of thinking, based on Newtonian principles, and also on the findings of some of the other Newtonian disciplines. So The basic paradigm is that um, somehow we are living in a material world. The the, the basis of the world is matter. Consciousness is an insignificant accident, something that sort of developed after billions of years of of evolution of this inanimate uh, matter. Um, It also developed in a very insignificant part of the universe. And another basic assumption is that uh, consciousness critically depends not only on matter, but on a specific form of matter, which is a highly developed center nervous system. So it's a concept, really, of um, consciousness uh, contained in the skull. And the idea that um, other people are sort of separate Newtonian entities, and the only way we can communicate is through some kind of known forms of uh, energy in uh, in this context. Then, if you if you do uh, the the experiential work with psychedelics, without psychedelics, or if you look at the uh, findings of, of uh, disciplines like thanatology, uh, the experiences of people who come close to death, so on, you discover a lot of uh, phenomena that simply cannot be understood or interpreted in this context, mm-hmm. like this increasing evidence that people who die clinically. Uh, and are being resuscitated have an experience of consciousness detaching from the body, precipitating somewhere near the ceiling, and then from there watching the whole scene. So that after they're brought back to life, they can describe exactly what happened, who came through which door, how many people were involved. They can draw the gadgets that were used to resuscitate them, like the the cardiac defibrillator and so on. Mm -hmm. And according to Ken Ring and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and other people, People who had been blind in this situation can actually visually perceive and describe the situation. We have seen a number of instances that in transpersonal experiences, people would get instantly new information about a phenomenon that they are experiencing. Become an animal and suddenly understand a lot of things about the animal. Uh, experience an event in another culture and get instant understanding of the architecture, costumes, ritual form, or sometimes bringing historical details. So so we are facing a phenomenon that simply cannot be explained in the the, um, Newtonian framework. What is now important is that most of the disciplines in science are using the Newtonian framework as a kind of mandatory framework for science. See, and what uh, people like Fritjof Capra have emphasized is that physicists themselves have really, by far, transcended the Newtonian framework. But physics became so complicated that the scientists in the other disciplines cannot catch up. So they're still sort of ruminating the old Newtonian truths, which, you know, the Newtonian laws are very easy to learn in, in high class, uh, I mean in, in high school mm-hmm. physics. Uh, so they're still sort of hanging on to the to the uh, Newtonian worldview as the scientific worldview. Now, what happened in physics is that um, the matter is not indestructible anymore uh, the way it was in cho- Newtonian physics, where the atoms could not be divided any further. Atomos means something that cannot be cut, cannot be divided any further. Uh, atoms first disintegrated into kind of little planetary systems, where in the middle there was a nucleus and there were electrons whirling around it. Then the nucleus disintegrated, there were protons, neutrons, and so on. Then with high energy physics, you have hundreds of subatomic particles. And then the physicists of course ran into the dilemma that you were uh, uh, mentioning, that these particles in some experiment appear to have um, wave-like properties. So we have the wave particle dilemma uh, in physics. So suddenly what appeared to be solid Newtonian matter is entirely empty. Where there appeared to be discreteness, separateness, there are no more boundaries. So the whole universe of modern physics now is seen as a kind of unified web of events or relations. And there's an increasing number of physicists who believe that what really is the connecting principle in this web is consciousness itself. So that paradoxically, in the analysis of the physical world of matter, any traces of <coughs> Newtonian type of matter, solid stuff in the, in the ordinary kind of pedestrian sense, really totally disappears. But what does not disappear is something that is much closer to consciousness or thought, which is the idea of, of order, uh, the idea of, of a pattern, of form, mm-hmm. of equation. See, so that in that sense, this world suddenly approaches more and more the world of the, of the mystic. Now, when uh, um, physicists were uh, trying to somehow understand this paradox, one of the people who were very much interested in it was Niels Bohr, one of the founders of modern physics. And he tried for a long time to, to find some visualizable model that, that Einstein always wanted. Mm-hmm. You see, what is that entity that can manifest sometimes as a particle, sometimes has wave-like properties? And then he finally gave up, and he he formulated the so-called principle of complementarity, meaning that if you, if you want to understand what matter is, if you want to understand what light is, because the same wave-particle paradox is also in relation to light, the photon. So if you want to understand light, if you want to understand... Um, particles, subatomic particles, you have to accept that they are both waves and sort of discrete material entities. That these are two aspects of the same phenomenon and then actually which aspect manifests in a particular experiment depends on the arrangement of the experiment and through this really on consciousness of the observer. Mm-hmm. The understanding the, or the preconception of the observer. Fritchov says that If you arrange the experiment so that you ask a particle question, you get a particle answer. The experiment will tell you that you're dealing with particles. If you arrange the experiment and you ask a wave question, it confirms that you're dealing with with waves. Uh Um, Now, uh, Niels Bohr wrote books uh, where he was suggesting that this is possibly a principle that will appear in some other scientific disciplines. It's just a precedent The first, really, first time when science has to learn to live with a paradox. does not have a nice, visualizable, reasonable image of what it is dealing with. Mm -hmm. But he suggested that this will appear in other disciplines. Now, what we can say now is that um, in psychiatry, in psychology, in um, psychotherapy, in anthropology, in thanatology, that we have somehow a situation that parallels this. So you, can't, you cannot extrapolate from, uh, from the quantum domain to human beings. You would be jumping too many mm-hmm. levels. But there's a precedent that one very advanced scientific discipline has to live with the principle of complementarity, which involves a paradox. Mm-hmm. And you can say that we have now accumulated in these disciplines that study human beings similar kind of controversial material that somehow cannot be integrated in an easily imaginable, logical way. Mm -hmm. That uh, up to this point, most of the scientific disciplines have studied human beings as kind of Newtonian objects or um, biological machines. And uh, in Fritschoff's terminology, they have been asking only the biological machine type of questions and only experiments geared towards confirming that aspect were really permissible. But now uh, there's increasing evidence from, again, modern consciousness research, thanatology, anthropology, um, the, the things that I was mentioning before, that is confirming the, the findings or the, the, the claims of so-called perennial philosophy, or the great sort of spiritual philosophies of the East. That somehow uh, human beings are also um, unlimited fields of consciousness, transcending time, transcending space, uh, transcending uh, linear causality. So that in order to understand what it is to be a human being, you have to accept that we are biological machines, mm-hmm. Newtonian objects, which is a very real aspect of us, but that also, in some other circumstances or some other experimental arrangements, if you want to put it that way, we can manifest properties of a field of consciousness that has no, in principle, no boundaries.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what
2: that would mean is that we have these two aspects, which also have two corresponding broad categories of states of consciousness, the kind of ordinary everyday state of consciousness, mm-hmm. which portrays, the re- portrays reality as being kind of where... Uh, Matter is solid and, and space is three-dimensional, mm-hmm. time is linear, but then you have the reality of the of the unusual states of consciousness. I call it actually holotropic mm-hmm. mode of consciousness. Holos means whole, and trapane means to, to aim towards or moving towards something. Mm-hmm. The ordinary state of consciousness I call hilotropic. Hile means matter. So that would be matter-oriented. Mm-hmm. The other one is uh, the state of consciousness that's moving towards wholeness, towards the totality of existence. Where you can become anything in the in the universe, including the whole universe itself.
0: Good.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Ple-
0: pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Shannon Hudson, and Greg Archer. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.